But, you know, Alex had a baby this month and moved, so we thought we'd maybe make the research a little less. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word and the joy that it brings to our heart, as Jeremiah said. It's, a, it's the joy and rejoicing of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for Alec and the joy you've given him this month and with the midst all of the, the, the move and paper deadlines, Lord, for his willingness to step up and serve today. We pray you would empower him and, and, uh, and just allow... Uh, well, I just pray that what happened to Timothy, what Paul prayed for Timothy, that the gift that is in him would be fanned into flame. Holy Spirit, just breathe on him now. And fan those gifts into flame. Father, we open our hearts to receive. We know, Lord, that the teaching event, the preaching event, Lord, is, is not just about speaking. It's about hearing. It's about listening. It's about having hearts that are soft, that are good ground for the seed of your word. So make us good soil today, Lord. And may good fruit come. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you seeing this? Yep. Thanks. Thank you, Gordy. As Gordy mentioned, it's been a pretty crazy month for us between um, moving houses, having a baby, finishing papers, doing a bunch of other projects. You know, I'm, I'm glad to be here, but I don't really know where that is. I, sorry? Yeah, it's kind of mental. But don't worry. You're getting nothing but the best from me today. Did I mention we had a baby? Hello, Emily Bell. Don't be surprised if we have a few Millie breaks during this sermon. You've, you've heard of Miller time? Well, this is Millie time. We're going to have a few Millie times. Um, check this one out. This is good, too. This is... Yeah, Papa and uh, new baby on the back deck of our new place. We're, we're so excited. This was a great scene because I was drinking more coffee. Always a good thing. I was having coffee time and Millie time. At the same time, I almost exploded. Anyway... So I gather uh, from the hearsay that we've been doing a series on lesser lights, and I'm a part of it today, which is great. Um, lesser lights, people from Scripture who often don't get as much attention as Millie. I mean, people from Scripture that may not get as much attention as some of the big names, Jesus, Paul, David, Abraham, these kinds of people. The lesser light I've been assigned today is someone whose name you will definitely know, but usually because it's associated with his gospel, which isn't really about him as much as Jesus. So we're talking about Matthew. Let's start with a few biographical details. Millie was born August 5th, 2.15 a.m. Oh, wait a minute, wrong details. Sorry. Matthew, Matthew. Matthew's biographical details. Matthew was a Galilean from Capernaum. He was a tax collector, which meant the same thing as it does today. Crummy job and no one liked him. He's often paired with Thomas in the scriptures um, when the disciples are listed. He was a witness of the resurrection and the ascension. And beyond these bullet points, Matthew's real claim to fame in scripture is the scene of his calling, which occurs in Matthew 9, 9 to 13. I want to focus the remainder of our time on that scene, the scene of Matthew's calling. Because I want to suggest that that scene actually says a great deal about Matthew's gospel as a whole. And the kinds of buttons that Matthew is intentionally pushing about what he wants us to understand about Jesus. What I mean is, 
this scene of Matthew's calling, it includes some interpretive clues to what Matthew as a disciple and as an interpreter of Jesus wants us to know about God. And we shouldn't really think of the Gospels as though they were these little video clips of Jesus. You know, like Matthew or Mark or Luke or John were, were simply the people holding iPhones when everything was going down. You know, when they, they weren't just recording. They were interpreting actively. They didn't just capture in passive ways the things that Jesus said and did. So what I'm saying is that this scene in Matthew's calling is part of what makes Matthew's bigger contribution so unique to our understanding of who Jesus is. Let's listen in on the scene itself. Somebody want to read that? Please. Okay, thank you, Mark. Next. Who was that? The, there you go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word that you've given to us today. Thank you for this church, and thank you for Gordy's discerning word about preaching being an event between speaker and listener. And we are all listeners this morning, all of us. So I pray that you'd open our hearts to hear from you today. Let your spirit reveal to us the word you want us to hear and take home, to live out. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, This is a very interesting scene, don't you think? I really like the way Caravaggio painted this scene, this moment um, where Jesus singles Matthew out. There he is, the one with the finger pointing to his chest going, who, me? And you can't really, I mean, it's a very dark painting. Caravaggio is known for his values, but the, um, you know, darks and lights. So you can't really see Jesus, but he's the guy with the line above his head. That's the halo. You know, so there he is sitting with the other tax men, maybe the Beatles songs playing in the background, and Jesus calls him out, who, me? And he gets up and follows him. From here, Jesus heads off with dinner at his new recruit's house, and during a seemingly ordinary event, Jesus completely confounds the Pharisees. When the Pharisees see Jesus go to dinner with the tax collectors like Matthew and sinners, they get all fussy. What's he doing eating with all these sinners and tax collectors? If he is trying to build credibility as a prophet, he's going about it the wrong way. He's hanging out with the wrong people. So they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with these losers? And Jesus intercepts the question, and he responds with some pretty intriguing words. Now, it's interesting, especially since I'm trying to make a case today, that Matthew has something special to contribute. It's interesting to point out that Mark and Luke in their Gospels both include this scene, but neither of them include this sentence. This sentence is unique only to Matthew in this scene. And if you give it a second glance, it's actually kind of out of place. It doesn't really fit. Mark and Luke's versions are a lot easier to read than Matthew's. They're smoother. Jesus simply says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
period. Pretty straightforward. And if we were reading their versions, we might be inclined to think that Jesus is making an obvious mission statement. They want to know why he eats with sinners, and he says, because he's on a mission to reach sinners. Healthy people don't need a doctor, so here I am with all the sick people. The end. But when Matthew jams this sentence in here, he's saying something about the Pharisees. When he jams this sentence in about the Pharisees going and learning what it means to desire mercy and not sacrifice, we should ask some questions. What is, what's he trying to say? What's it mean? Not only does this sentence interrupt the natural flow of Jesus' response, it also really doesn't seem that pertinent to the story itself. It sounds like Jesus breaks his train of thought just to give out some homework, and then he comes back to the point. Well, in the first place, Matthew, as the writer, is intentionally citing from the Old Testament prophet Hosea here. And we'll have to deal with that citation. That's what that little footnote what the letter means. It means, check that out at the bottom of the page. It references a different scripture. By citing Hosea here, Matthew is bringing all the emphases of that book right into this conversa- confrontation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And before we get to that, I at least want to let you know where we're headed. It's my point today that not only does this citation fit, but it helps us understand one of those buttons that Matthew is pushing. That's this. Matthew, as the tax-collecting sinner who is associating with all these despised people, the one who's been called out, singled out, that Matthew, he wants to redirect our attention to what righteousness truly means in light of Jesus. And it seems pretty important that we catch his drift, because only a few chapters back in Matthew, Jesus told the crowd, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's kind of a big deal that we understand what kind of righteousness we need. To let the cat out of the bag, in this scene with Matthew, Jesus seems to be suggesting that the Pharisees actually have a lot to learn about what kind of righteousness God desires. Perhaps they're not as healthy as they might like to think. And Jesus cites Hosea to make the point. So let's take a conscious detour to look at Hosea for a little bit, if you don't mind. Hosea. Hold on. Okay. To jog your memory about what's going on in the Old Testament prophetic book of Hosea, here's what's going on. The people that God chose to be a light to the nations, the Israelites, they have regularly refused God's wisdom. They have persisted in idolatry. And from God's point of view, it is the priests who are responsible. In fact, at one point, Hosea says in chapter 4, verse 7, the more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. But what God finds so appalling isn't just their rebellion and idolatry, it's the fact that they have persisted in keeping up at the same time as their idolatry all the religious appearances that they typically had. And if their hearts are far from him, what good's all their ritual? 
Hosea is the prophet who's called to prophesy that God has grown weary of their empty rituals, their sacrifices, their burnt offerings. All of that has become a hollow performance, lacking sincerity. And God's tired of it. The very reason he gave them the law was intended to provoke life, to to bring life. He gave them the law so that they could know him, so they could relate to him. But they've rejected this relationship. They exchanged God's glory for something disgraceful. And what should really strike us as we read Hosea is is the way that the prophet describes God's perspective about how this feels, about this disintegrating relationship. What Hosea does beautifully in poetic words is he puts, puts to words the way God feels about being abandoned by his people. And from God's point of view, it feels like adultery. But... As you probably know, Hosea is told to do a lot more than just describe how God feels. It's way more significant than words. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. If you like soap opera, read Hosea. Hosea is told to enter into marriage with a woman that he knows is going to be unfaithful. Why? Because his, Hosea's faithfulness to this adulterous woman will serve as a prophetic symbol of God's own faithfulness to his idolatrous, adulterous people. Although his people are unfaithful to him, he will remain faithful to them. Of course, this doesn't mean there aren't consequences. So God warns them that the children of their unfaithfulness, which is more than a metaphor, the children of their unfaithfulness, will bring about their own judgment. And I wish we had time to read more of Hosea, but we don't. Suffice it to say here that although there's lots of hope and promise in Hosea, the tone of judgment is really strong. The Lord cannot tolerate Israel's adultery forever. Who could? And through the mouth of Hosea, his war- he warns his people that something's got to change. Although they've been following the rituals of religion, what does God say he really wants from them? What's his desire? The verse that we most, most of us do know from Hosea, this is his desire. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Light bulb goes off. This is the exact verse Jesus quotes in that scene of Matthew's calling that Matthew intentionally inserts, whereas Mark and Luke don't. What does mercy mean here? Does he want him does he want his people to treat him with mercy? Doesn't quite make sense. Well, this word mercy is one of those Hebrew words that makes you spit when you say it. And I think we can have a collective spit session. Chesed. Chesed. I'm alone here. Come on. Chesed. Chesed. I feel bad for who uses this mic after me today. Uh, In the Old Testament, you guys didn't do that well, just so you know. My review is poor. Thank you. Kathleen got a good hawk going. Okay. In the Old Testament, chesed is a word that really doesn't have a singular definition. It's, It's fully dynamic. It's a relational word. And we most often hear it as something that God possesses and expresses. It's, it comes from God. Chesed. 
So it's often translated as God's loving kindness. It's his steadfast love. It's what the psalmist is describing when he writes, the Lord's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. He's good to all. He has compassion on all he's made. He's full of chesed. He has consistently and faithfully expressed this kind of steadfast love to Israel, despite their rebellion, idolatry, and adultery. He's been faithful, steadfast, chesed. But this verse is so poignant because it's the same thing that makes Hosea in general so powerful. His steadfast love has always been for the sake of relationship. So God says that in lieu of all the ways he's been chesed to them, what he wants is to see it in return. He wants them to be faithful in return. He wants them to reflect the mercy he's shown them. He desires that. He wants them to reciprocate his love. And this is the really important part about that. The law was intended to help them do that. That's why he gave them the law. It was a good thing. God gave them the law so that through their knowledge of him, which is how they knew him through the law, through their steadfast obedience to his word, they would then mediate his life and goodness to each other and the strangers around them. See, this is the thing. These go in parallel. Acknowledging God in the way he desires naturally produces the mercy he wants to see in the world. And it breaks his heart that his people called to know him refuse to understand. I'm a bit embarrassed to admit this, but whenever I think of this verse from Hosea, I think of that Bonnie Raitt song from the early 90s, I Can't Make You Love Me. You remember that song? I do. And I remember it because it really affected me. I was, probably, I was probably like eight years old when that came out. And I remember having it on the, hearing it on the radio and just feeling so bad thinking about these people, one of whom's really hurting because her lover's cold. Does this ring bells for people? Yeah, it's a profound song. Yeah, Miles. Maybe we could do a little sing-along. Sing it out if you know it. I can't make you love me if you don't. You're not supposed to smile while you sing it, so... You can't make your heart feel something it won't Here in the dark In these final hours I will lay down my heart And I feel the power But you won't, dear No, you won't No one, you're with me though, right? Thank, thanks I remember being completely aware I had no capacity to understand what that song was about at eight years old. But I knew enough to know it was something grown-ups got to experience, and I remember feeling it was way over my head. I was more interested in watching Kung Fu and playing with Legos, but in any case, what I'm saying is the ministry of Hosea suggests that the sentiment behind Bonnie's song is similar to the depth of emotion God feels when the people he has covenanted with, the people he's married to, refuse to love him, but also refuse to love those he's called into relationship as well. The tragedy of Israel's rejection of God's chesed is that it amounts to a full-scale breakdown, not just in their relationship with him, but in their relationships with each other as well. And so by saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings, 
God is trying to wake his people up to this reality. All that their empty ritual amounts to is keeping up appearances while in the bedroom things are cold. They're sneaking around on their husband. The reason I said this is more than a metaphor is because the reason this sneaking around is so tragic is that the children of their unfaithfulness will never reflect the kind of mercy and love that they've already been shown and that the rest of the world is dying for. Hosea 4 puts this really dramatically. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. This is his charge against them. There is no faithfulness, no love, chesed. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. What's the consequence? What follows? What does this mean to God? What it means for God is what it means for the very people needing to hear some good news. That's what it means to God. Because there's no acknowledgement of God, there is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. We could stop right here if we wanted to and just have a time of repentance, because already we're convicted, I would think. But at this point, we really ought to get back to Millie. I mean, Matthew. I'm, no. I mean Millie. This was yesterday. They fell asleep on the couch, and I was like, look at that bundle of heads. I think I'll take a picture of that one. Millie's like, what's the deal, Papa? I'm going to knock you out. Back to Matthew. By the time we get to the New Testament, God's people have been trying to learn their lesson. I think that as New Testament Christians, those who've come after the Pharisees, it's too easy to judge them. They're trying to learn their lesson. They've been wrestling with what it means to be truly faithful, to truly acknowledge God. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but it's good to be reminded The Pharisees get picked on a lot, but they were really animated by the belief that what it meant for them to be faithful, to be faithful, was to keep the law down to the smallest detail. And if we haven't met Jesus and we've studied Hosea like they did, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, it was their ancestors' failure to keep the law that got them in so much trouble in the first place, so that should mean the faithful thing to do, the way they can really prove to God that they understand his steadfast love— is to follow the law in every respect, right? Well, not exactly. Sadly for them. The scene we're looking at today reveals that they may have succeeded at keeping the law, but they still failed to keep the spirit of the law. And as we read the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, one of the questions we're consistently called to ask is this. Whose observance of the law faithfully reflects the steadfast love that God desires and whose does not? Whose righteousness or what kind of righteousness truly extends the mercy that God has shown to his people so consistently? Our lesser light today, Matthew, wants us to know that the Pharisees still have a lot to learn and we should learn from their mistake Let's go back to the passage. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're confused. They think that being righteous means keeping the law, no matter who gets crushed or neglected in the process. They think that what God wants from them is their behavior. He, he can make them love him. Even if this means neglecting the marginalized and marginalizing the neglected, Jesus warns them, their commitment to such a hollow version of righteousness has blinded them in many ways, but above all, to recognizing God's own presence in, the, in his person, in their midst. God is there, and they can't see him. On hearing their question, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You, Pharisees, go and learn what this means from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, and we could put it in quote marks now, but sinners. See, by citing Hosea in this way, we should by now realize that the Jesus in Matthew is definitely not saying that the Pharisees are healthy or righteous. He's definitely not saying that they've arrived in some way. And because they're doing so good, he's going to focus on all the other people who are actually screwed up. No, that's not it at all. The reason he gives them this homework from Hosea is because they still don't have a clue what righteousness looks like. And if they did, not only would they understand his motives for eating with these sinners, but they would be doing the same. Go and learn what this means. They'd be doing the same because God's love is powerful enough to cleanse and restore everything that's been lost in the darkness. Why is this Matthew's big point? It's because it happened to him. Despised as he was as a tax collector, associating as he was with all these sinners, the love of God in Christ was strong enough to bring him to a knowledge of mercy. True mercy. Chesed. What about us? Do we need to go and learn what this means? See, the fact is we're all sick and we need a doctor. We are all sinners called to answer God's invitation in Christ. But who's going to be the ones that hear this news? Who will accept this healing? It's those who know they're sick. Those who know the damage that all their sin has caused. The ones who miss out are those who have been deluded into believing that they're not the ones who need any medicine. But if we're going to be healed from our brokenness with each other and from our unfaithfulness to God, we need a medicine that's more powerful than all our effort to just do good, all our human attempts at being righteous. The way the gospel understands things, we were designed for fellowship with God, for intimacy. And it's simply true that if we're not being intimate with God, we're being intimate with something else. The Bible calls that idolatry. But in Hosea, it's called adultery. And the proof is in our children. We're going to make children. We can't help but do it. The fruit of their unrighteousness, the fruit of their unfaithfulness, led to all kinds of things we've already looked at. And as we learned from that word chesed, 
Intimacy with God will always reproduce in our lives those aspects of his personality the world's dying to see. His life. We're part of the genetic line. His life comes out of us. His mercy. His goodness. His steadfast loving kindness. And because we could never find a way to be faithful to him, because we just couldn't, he came in our flesh to show us how. I love the song we sang today that you guys brought, the adoration. The way you did it was great, for one thing. But that line, uh, maybe it's because I'm a new father and so everything's profound, you know. But um, that that line, um, uh, oh, now I can't remember what it was. In the moment, I almost felt like I should say something. Um, can you, how does it start? Sorry? No, just tell me how it starts. Uh, we bow our hearts, we, bow, we bend our knees, uh, and turn our eyes to you again. We surrender to the truth that all we need is found in you. That's profound to me right now as a dad, because... Millie doesn't have to surrender to the truth that all she needs is found in us as her parents. Like, she doesn't have to surrender to that. It's nature. It's instinct. It's true, but she doesn't, there's, no, there's no blockage there. Sin blocks the reality that we still, all we need is still found in God. The result of the fall is that our eyes are blind to what is true, what is reality. When we surrender to that truth, it's just acknowledging what is just as true as, as Millie's profound dependence on us. That she just lays there like a blob, waiting to be changed and, you know, fed. And all she does is just whine and cry about it, right? Like, we, we are just as dependent spiritually for life upon God. And that's, that's the result of the fall, is that it puts in our heads the need to surrender to that truth. I'm just like that baby. I'm just like that. We were made for Intimacy. And because we could never surrender on our own to God, because we couldn't find a way to be faithful to him, to surrender to the truth that all we need is found in him. He came in our flesh to show us how to surrender. Why does Jesus hang out with so-called sinners and tax collectors like Matthew? It's because they're the ones who already know they need to surrender something. I mean, they already know how far God had to descend in order to rescue them. And it's in response to that great flood of forgiveness they've been shown that they are going to be the ones who will finally love in the way God's been calling for since Hosea. But as we move to wrap up here, because I'm almost done, I want to do one more thing. We failed to have a really good sing-along earlier. Sorry. Sorry to judge you, but I was alone. I don't mind doing a solo here and there, but um, we're not going to do a sing-along now, but I'm going to do another song at least, play, play another song. I'm going to play you a song by a good friend of mine, Lance Odegaard. I've played his songs here before, um, but not this one. And I think this song really helps us reflect on what we've done today, which I know has been a lot. Um, it's been a lot for me. Lance wrote this song about a First Nations reserve near his hometown back in Alberta. Lance is from Camrose, Alberta white middle-class city that's about a half hour from the subject city of this song. The song's title is Obima. And I'm an import, so I'm speaking of things I know not. But Obima is a place where four tribes converge. I get this from Lance. And the place has been riddled with a great despair. Lots of gang crime, kids trapped in abuse, lots of bad stories. And Lance wrote this song as an outsider, reflecting 
on his own relationship to this spot on the map that most people tried to forget about. In fact, most people would deliberately, Lance told me about, Lance said most people deliberately try to drive around it. When Lance's mom found out that he was writing this song, she said with great distaste, who would ever want to hear a song about Obima? As far as a warning goes to those who might be visitors, Lance uses some words you might not expect at the altar call, but it's not any more potent, it's not, any more potent than what you will find when you read Hosea. So would you play that, Dean? You're so beautiful, you know, and that's why it's so hard. Just forget, and that's why they let the dark come and stay. Though your sins are like scarlet, though you're ravaged and torn, I'm as much the harlot who is waiting on the morn. Though we live in different neighborhoods. Difference flows in all our veins Both in need of a rescue We are so much the same Obima You've got to believe That you are not up we just say that to cover our own sores. There's more to be said, so much more that will be read of your story of resuscitation. Your sins are like scarlet, and you're ravaged and torn. I'm as much the harlot. Waiting on the morn. Though we live in different neighborhoods and difference flows in all our veins, both in need of a rescue, we are so much the same. Oh, be
like scarlet, though we're ravaged and torn. There's one who loves the harlot, and he showed up in the morn. And he moves right in our neighborhoods, and kindness flows in all his veins. His love is a rescue, we won't. Yeah, that's great. We're members of Christ's own body as the New Testament people of God. We have been made one with him. Not because we keep the law. But because we've received his spirit. (laughs) If we're wise, we'll be good students of the lesson that Jesus had to teach the Pharisees. We will resist that temptation to put our faith in some false sense of righteousness that denies how very much the same we are with those sinners we just as soon dismiss. Instead, we will appreciate just how far he had to descend. Sorry. I've listened to that song a lot and it still gets me every time I was telling Crystal that. The lesson from today, from the lesser light of Matthew, is that our appreciation of our rescue is measured precisely by the ways we reflect his love. When we reflect it to him, It's called worship. We did that this morning. But when we reflect it to others, it's called mission. But it's all from the same intimacy, the same relationship. Why don't we end in prayer? Lord God, I'm just thankful for Lance's song for one thing. Continues to speak to my heart anyway, to convict me of how little seriously I take the call to reflect your love. Especially to others. I'm a victim of sentiment when it comes to worship, and I I feel I've connected with you, but Lord, there's so much more that will be read of the world's story of resuscitation. I want to be a part of that. Would you fill us all with your spirit right now to be a part of that? Lord, to truly know you so we might show your love, your hesed, your steadfast loving kindness to those who really need it, starting with ourselves. Fill this church with your spirit, God. Thank you so much that in baptism, in your son's name, and you know we're having baptism tonight, but you know, that so vividly expresses how we have been called into new life with you. Through your spirit, we've been called to new life. You've washed us. You've loved us. So faithfully. Let us do the same, oh God. In your son's precious name. I just feel like so convicted. And 
I just feel like the Lord is just breaking rigidity off of us that we're we have such a desire to to do what Alec is saying about being able to be missional and go out and love with that kind of love, the steadfast kindness. And I believe the Lord, through this message, is just giving us that flexibility to bend and to extend ourselves to um, go beyond who we are, trying to protect ourselves, to go out and reach out. And I just had a, a quick image of what happened yesterday, Alec, as uh, I was interacting with Annalise, who is, she's six, and she somehow, she's my granddaughter, she's picked up a real heart for the First Nations, even though she's been living in Switzerland, but she's seen a lot of the First Nations people, um, and the Swiss have this heart for Swiss Nations, so we went on a holiday, and they had what they called the Indianers, and they played the Indianers, and they had the teepee and all the rest of it. But I've, I had this doll that Gordy brought back, and it was a beautiful, beautiful First Nations doll, completely decorated with buckskin, and just, and it's kind of been sitting on my cupboard, and she has a little teepee. And before we left on holidays, Annalise went, and she looked up there, she said, Grandma, could I play with that? Dolly and I said, "Well, no, Anne Lisa, because you you should see my house. It's just completely it was completely disaster. You know that's, you know, like for me, I always like things clean, right? And with uh, all the four grandkids, and so I thought I am not going to take that down, and add to the disaster of what's happening in the house. And I just had ima- I could imagine ketchup and mustard smeared all over that." buckskin and so like I said no honey I mean I'll, grandma will get you you know so I had all the other things that she could pull apart and then when we came back and I came back to even more of a disaster because they came back earlier before we got there and uh, of course I was up till midnight trying to f- like I found all kinds of stuff you would not imagine in under the couch in the couch whatever <clears throat> anyway she came back again, and she said, Grandma, could I, could I now have a chance to see that Indi- Indian doll? And I said, no, honey. And then I just felt so convicted, and I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, you go and get that <clears throat> doll, because <clears throat> it's more than just her playing and messing that doll up. She has a connection in her heart for the First Nations people. So I got that dolly down. And she was so careful with it. And she actually said, Grandma, I want to, can I play with the dolly? And so she changed the dolly's long hair into a beautiful braid. And it actually looked more like a First Nations doll when she finished with it. But the point I, I want to confess to you is what is God is breaking me out of is, you know, when we reach out and we love people, it gets messy. There's like so much mess, but you know, if I get fixated on trying to clean things up all the time and I don't interact with people, then I just miss out. And I just feel like we, God is just giving us his heart not to look at the mess. If I didn't have them there, there wouldn't be a mess, but it would be just an empty shell, right? So I just release this, this flexibility in our hearts in our lives here in this church, not, well, certainly not to be like me, to be so fixated on cleaning things up and having things neat, but, you know, to be messy. It's okay to be messy and to choose to love in the mess. There'll be time to clean up. You know, you can't let everything, you can't have your toilet plugged up for, for days, right? 
But, you know, it's, it, what Gallic was saying is this whole thing. I hope that, you know, what you're talking about is that it's easy to come and worship God this way. But, what, but going out and just being flexible and not being obsessed with, oh, wow, you know, being messed up, getting messed up. Because we need to be messed up. Sorry. I don't know how theologically accurate that is, but we need to admit our own mess and join in the mess and love and, and let the Holy Spirit come and transform us into community. So I want to thank you, Alec. Thanks, Kathleen. Well, it's almost time uh, to get kids for sure. The... Um, but there's time to pray and um, pray for each other. So I'm going to invite you to do that. Dean will play some music. Um, but let me pray for us before we go. And um, don't feel obligated to rush off. Stay in the place if you're in one. And uh, get prayer if you need it. Lord, I pray your blessing upon us as your church. To get messy with you. In the thick of life, in real life, God, where faithfulness and unfaithfulness really do produce consequences or blessings. I pray, God, that you would make us people, your people, who know you intimately. Let each person here really have an intimate knowledge of you this week. I pray that there'd be reports and testimonies of just random things that happened that uh, random experiences that made us all stop and say wow the Lord is in this place I am humbled in his presence and let that not be enough God let us understand the call to, to produce your life period so thank you for this day we worship you, we exalt you, and we surrender to the truth that all we need is found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.